Mark chapter 14, and uh, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 32 um, to 51, 32 to 51. Mark 14, and I'll begin reading in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going, see. My betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of, one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not cease me, seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage, we do ask that by your Spirit, you would give us understanding. But not just understanding but a heart that is receptive to your truth. That it would change us. That it would create in us a, a deeper desire to live for Jesus and to love him with our whole being. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the... Um, the great mysteries of our faith is the incarnation of the Son of God. 
which we, of course, um, celebrate every year at Christmas. The incarnation is the belief that the Son of God clothed himself in humanity, that he took upon himself human form. He did not give up his divinity, but added humanity to himself. The church has always believed that Jesus Christ was both fully divine and fully human. He wasn't partly divine and he wasn't partly human, but he was fully human and fully divine, which is very hard for our finite minds to fully comprehend. It is one of the great mysteries of our faith. Because we believe Jesus was both divine and human, it also means that we believe that Jesus had a human will and also a divine will. In his divine will, as the Son of God, he was always in unison with his Father's will. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as the one triune God, have one will. But as the Son of God incarnate, clothed in humanity, Jesus' human will learned obedience and learned to surrender to his heavenly Father's will as a man. That is, Jesus actually had to submit his human will to God's will. And where Adam failed as a man, Jesus as a man succeeded. He was, as a man, obedient to the will of God. As, as Hebrews 5, 7-8 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. That's actually referring to the story that we're looking at this morning. To him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, this is what we read, he learned obedience through what he suffered. You see, one of the errors we sometimes make as Christians is downplaying the humanity of Jesus because we know he was also fully divine. It's as though we, we sometimes feel that his divinity canceled out his humanity. That is, his human experience wasn't fully human because he was divine. He doesn't really know what it's like to be a human, to suffer as we have suffered, to, to be tempted as we have been tempted. Now, there's several problems with this, of course, which I'm not going to get into this morning. But for one, it, it undermines the, the clear teaching of the scriptures. The scriptures testify that Jesus was human in every way that we are, yet without sin. He knew human weakness. He knew human frailty. He knew human sorrow. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He knew and experienced human emotions. He knew the weakness and frailty of the human body. He tired. He knew what it was to have a human mind. He knew the power of temptation. And he, of course, knew more than any other human suffering. You see, one of the problems with this, if we downplay his humanity, is that it will undermine and take away the meaning and richness of a passage like the one we're looking at this morning. You see, I don't think there's a passage in the Bible that reveals the humanity of Jesus more than Jesus' time in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see the man 
Christ Jesus, here in a very unique way. There's a reason, for example, in the outline that I've provided for you in the bulletin that I'm emphasizing the humanity of Christ, because I believe this passage does so. I want us to see the man, Christ Jesus. And this idea actually comes from John 19, 15, when, when Pilate, after having Jesus flogged, he presents Jesus to the people and he says the, these words, Behold the man. Behold the man. I want us to behold the man this morning. Jesus has just told the disciples that they would betray him. And of course, they reject his prediction and claim, and, and especially Peter, right? They, they claim that they're willing to die with Jesus. And so they make their way to the Mount of Olives, and while there, they, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and it's here where things begin to happen. The drama picks up. The, the predictions that Jesus makes begins to unfold. So there are three things that I want us to see in this passage this morning about the man, Jesus Christ. And the first is this, the man's agonizing surrender and temptation. The man's agonizing surrender and temptation. Jesus, while in Gethsemane, tells several of his disciples to remain where they were while he goes and prays. But he takes with him Peter, James, and John um, to, to a more secluded spot. And there's a reason for this. Remember, it was Peter, James, and John who were invited to behold Jesus' transfiguration. And now they're invited to behold Jesus' agony. Also, these three were by far the most confident of the disciples in believing that they would willingly suffer and die with Jesus. James and John thought themselves able to drink the cup that Christ would drink, and that's why they made that request to Jesus, in your kingdom, let us sit at the place of honor, at your right hand and at your left. And of course, Peter was also convinced that he alone would not deny Jesus. And it's here in this secluded place, in the darkness, where these men will begin to experience the humbling that is necessary for them to become the men that Christ would have them become. Now we're told in verse 33 that Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He was overcome with horror and agony as he pondered what laid before him. He explained to his disciples that his soul, his human soul, was, was greatly sorrowful to the point of death. Not because of death, but his soul was so sorrowful, it was to the point of death. It's almost impossible to comprehend the inner agony that Jesus was feeling and experiencing in this moment. Luke twenty two forty four tells us that so great was his agony that his sweat became like great, drop, great drops of blood. But what's hard to comprehend, though, is that up until this point, Jesus has displayed an incredible degree of composure and calmness in the midst of adversity. And even after this moment... Jesus again demonstrates incredible composure and calm. 
When Judas and the mob come to arrest him, he seems calm. Before Pilate and the mocking crowds, he seems calm. See, the narrative demonstrates a man who is composed and calm, except here. In this moment, in the darkness of the night, alone with his three disciples, Jesus is overcome with agony. And we need to ask, why? Why? What was it that was weighing down upon Jesus' soul? What was it that caused such great agony and sorrow? Well, I think there were two things. The first, we see a clue from Jesus' prayer in verse 35 to 36. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And notice that in verse 35, Mark gives a summary of what Jesus prayed. His request was that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And then in verse 36, we actually have Jesus' prayer and his specific request, remove this cup from me. So the cup and the hour, the cup, Lord, remove this cup, the hour being passed away, are describing the same thing. The hour and the cup are metaphors to describe the same reality. So what was the hour? What was the cup? That Jesus was asking to be removed, which was creating such agony for him. Well, it was his impending death. But it was the nature of his death that caused such agony and horror for him. Because his death was unique. It wasn't just any other human death. Now, of course, many men have suffered and died in a similar way, physically, like Jesus died. And so why was Jesus overcome with a le level of agony that seems beyond comprehension when many men have faced death more bravely than Jesus in that sense? But the truth of the matter is, no man has experienced the death Jesus experienced. The reason Jesus was overcome with a level of agony and sorrow beyond comprehension was because of what was actually happening in his death. That the physical suffering of his death could only allude to. There was something in the cup that Jesus in his death would drink. What was in the cup? Two things. One, it was a cup full of sin. First Peter 2.24 says this, He himself, that is Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus wasn't dying for his own crimes, but the crimes of humanity, the sin of the world. The cup was full full, overflowing with human depravity. The killing fields of man, the sexual per perversions of earthly civilizations, a cup full of jealousy, hatred, and covetousness, wickedness, and pride, and he drank that cup in our place. 
Most of us can't bear with the guilt of our own sin. Imagine bearing the guilt of the whole human race. But it wasn't just a cup full of sin. It was also a cup full of the righteous, holy, pure wrath of God. Jesus' agony in the garden wasn't because he was pondering the nails in his wrists or the mocking or the flogging. His agony and horror as a man was that he would drink the cup of God's wrath. In the Old Testament, the cup is used often as a metaphor for God's holy wrath against wickedness. So, for example, Isaiah 51, 17 says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl the cup of staggering. That cup that Jesus was requesting to have removed, if possible, was the curse of God. And in his death, we're told that Jesus became a curse for us. As Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He was cursed. He drank the curse of God. If you want to read about the cursings of God, which we're not going to do this morning, you can go to Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28, and you will see the contrast between the cursings of God and the blessings of God. You see, this was partly why Christ was full of agony and horror. He looked into that cup of sin and wrath, and in his humanity, he was overcome by the horror of it. So great was the horror that he got on his face before his Abba Father, that intimate language between him and his Father, and cried, if possible, remove this cup from me. Not once in the Gospel of Mark up until this point does Jesus remotely seem afraid until here. The other thing that I believe was causing Jesus such turmoil was that he was facing severe temptation while in the Garden of Gethsemane. The passage doesn't tell us this explicitly, but I think Satan was there in the Garden tempting the man, Jesus. I don't know if you remember the movie The Passion by Mel Gibson, or The Passion of the Christ, I can't remember the title. Um, there's a lot wrong with that film, but I'll, I'll say this. The, the scene where Jesus is in the Garden on his knees, and the serpent shows up, which of course isn't in the scripture, I think it's accurate. I think Jesus was experiencing the temptation of the devil. And there are several reasons for why I think this. You remember when Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness for 40 days and nights? We're told in Luke 4.13, after uh, Satan was, was not successful in tempting Jesus, that he departed and was looking for an opportune time. A time in which Jesus would be more vulnerable to temptation. And then you have in, in Mark 8, for example, when Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to suffer and die. 
And Peter rebukes him. And, and in that rebuke by Peter, Jesus saw the temptation of Satan. And that's why Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In other words, through Peter, Satan was attempting to allure Jesus away from the cross. But if Jesus had not said that to Peter, we wouldn't have known that Satan was active there. And I think here, in Jesus' agony and distress... This was another moment Satan was looking to tempt Jesus away from the cross. And the reason I think this is because the whole context is revolving around the concept of temptation. Jesus tells his disciples to watch and pray that they may not enter into temptation, to be taken by temptation. And they, of course, don't listen to him, and they all later give in to temptation. Whereas Jesus in the garden is crying out in anguish to his father in order to resist being taken by temptation. You see, on the one hand, Jesus was agonizing, horrified over the cup of sin and God's wrath. And on the other hand, Satan was whispering in his ear, you don't have to go to the cross if you don't want to. There's another way. And in his turmoil and in his agony, Jesus was resisting the temptation of Satan. You see, it's not a coincidence that Jesus, as the second Adam, would be tempted by the devil in a garden. Just as Adam was tempted in a garden. The first Adam didn't overcome the temptation. The second Adam did. This was the other reason for Jesus' agony and turmoil within. In his humanity, he was being tempted by Satan to bypass the cross. Now, some have argued that Jesus doesn't really know the full weight of temptation like we do because he was inherently good. But the fact of the matter is, the opposite is probably true. Because he resisted temptation to the very end, he experienced the full weight of temptation. C.S. Lewis, reflecting on this in Mere Christianity, said this, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. And this is why the writer of Hebrews can say in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was distressed, agonizing over the cup that he would drink, 
and the temptation he was facing in his most vulnerable moment. But in the midst of it all, Jesus surrendered himself to the will of his heavenly Father. He denied his own will and entrusted himself to the will of his loving Father. Yet not what I will, but what you will. This was the moment in which he overcame the temptation and the agony of the cup. He submitted, to, he submitted his will to the will of his Father, and in doing this, he demonstrated his love and devotion to his heavenly Father and also his brotherly love for humanity. As Wynandi states, apart from his agony, without his fearful, physical abhorrence of and his inner emotional trauma at the approach of the impending hour, Jesus' resolute faithfulness would never have been manifested, nor his utter filial love for his Father, nor his unqualified brotherly love for humankind. In the face of all that looms before him, Jesus nonetheless says yes to the will of his Father, and in so doing, stubbornly declares, damn it all. Damned be Satan and all of his temptations, I will endure. Damned be sin and all of its vile consequences, I will bear. And damned be death and all of its torments, I will brave. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus the man is held up here as a picture of what true discipleship is all about. It comes to a place where you no longer live for your own will but for the will of God. The true disciple says, not my will, but your will be done. Here we see the man's agonizing surrender and temptation. Third, secondly, we see the man's warning. The man's warning. In verse 37 to 40, And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Jesus had instructed the three disciples to be on the watch, to be, on, to be alert. In Matthew's account, he invited them to watch with him. The idea, of course, was that he wanted them to watch and pray alongside him. But after he's been on his knees with his face to the ground, pouring his soul out to his father, surrendering his will to the father, he comes and finds the three of them sleeping. And he directly addresses Peter, but includes the others. Could you not watch one hour? I didn't ask you to stay up all night. One hour. You see the irony here, right? The man who said just a few hours before, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you, isn't even able to watch with Jesus for one hour because of his physical tiredness. And this is when Jesus gives his warning. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. 
See, Jesus is calling his disciples and us to be alert and to be devoted to prayer for the purpose of protecting us from the temptations that will come our way. And he also speaks to our weakness as frail human beings. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We know this all too well. We have good intentions in doing something, but our flesh is so weak that we cannot overcome the weakness of our flesh. Peter is the best example of this. He was willing to follow Jesus even to his own death, but in the end, his fallenness and the weakness of his flesh overcame his willing spirit. You see, what Jesus is articulating is that it's impossible, it's impossible to overcome temptation by mere human effort. If it were possible, if, if all it took for us to overcome temptation was sheer human will, then Jesus would never have told them to pray. In other words, human strength is not enough. We need divine strength to overcome the weakness of our flesh and to overcome the temptations that are banging at our door. You see, three times Jesus goes and prays and three times he comes to them and in each time he finds them asleep. You see, what was the fundamental reason for why Jesus was able to endure his temptation while the disciples, in the end, all gave in to temptation. It was because in the midst of Christ's agony, he was on his knees communing and pleading with his, with his father, and three disciples were on their backs, sleeping completely unaware of what was about to happen. You see, it's not a coincidence that three times Jesus confronts them on their sleeping and in the end all the disciples flee and Peter denies Christ three times. Jesus overcame his temptation through prayer. The disciples were taken by temptation because of, lack, because of a lack of prayer. That's the warning, brothers and sisters. Without prayer, we will not have the strength within ourselves to overcome the temptations that seek to seize us in this life. Why? What is it about prayer that helps with temptation? Well, it's quite simple. Prayer is the means by which we call upon God for divine help to overcome that which we could never overcome by our own human will and strength. Let me say that again. Prayer is the means by which we call upon God for divine help to overcome that which we could never overcome by our own human will and strength. In other words, prayer is humbling ourselves and asking for an outside source of strength in order for us to not give in to temptation. This is precisely what Jesus was doing when he was on his knees and his face was to the ground before his heavenly Father. He was communing with his Father and through his praying, he was given strength to overcome what, what he was experiencing. In fact, Luke records for us in Luke 22 that when Jesus was praying, an angel appeared to him. 
This is what we read in Luke 22, 41 to 43. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven doing what? Strengthening him. An angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Do you see that? Jesus' loving father sent an angel to strengthen him in his darkest moment. We don't really talk about angels in our circles all that much because we've been way too deeply influenced by modernism. But I wonder how many Christian men and women have been strengthened in the midst of temptation by an angel without them even knowing it. Because they were on their faces before God asking for help to overcome temptation. Now you might say, but, but Peter, I, I have prayed and, and still I find that I, I give into temptation at times way too easily. And this may be true and, and I can testify to that same reality at times. Our flesh is so weak. We are such weak creatures. I experienced that this past week. Inez got sick on Wednesday and Thursday. Um, well, Wednesday night, Thursday night, she barely slept. And it was dreadful for both Gracie and I. And then on, um, I think it was Friday... Gracie had to go to a dental appointment, and so I was working in the study, and I had to put Inez down for a nap, and because she was sick, she would not go down. She's just screaming at the top of her lungs, and I am exhausted at this point. And I was overcome with anger. I was so angry. And from the whole situation, I just fell on my knees in my study and wept before God. Because here I was experiencing such anger toward my little girl who simply just needed to be comforted because she was sick. But I was so weak and frail. I was overcome by the wrath of a 19-month-old. Christ faced something far more severe. We are so weak and frail. And this is why we need to pray. And yes, you might say, but Peter, I pray and I still stumble, I still fall, and, and I do too. But one thing that might be worth pondering is imagine the kind of sins that could possibly take hold of you if you had not been praying. In other words, prayer is not some magic formula that if you simply pray, you're guaranteed to overcome temptation. We all know experientially that even in prayer, we can still give into temptation. But what we don't know is how much prayer has, in fact, protected us from greater evils in our lives. Let me give you one example in the scriptures, and, and it has to do with Peter's denying of Jesus. Luke's account of Jesus' encounter with Peter about his denial is fascinating. I want you to turn there. Turn to Luke 22, verses 31 to 32. Luke 22, 31 to 32. This is the, the, the most unique 
uh, encounter in the Gospels that Jesus has with Peter about his denial. This is what we read. Verse 31. So this is Jesus speaking to Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Isn't that interesting? So somewhere along the journey, Satan comes before the throne of God and he demands to have Peter. And what was his request? Or his demand, sorry. That he might sift you like wheat. That is, shake you in such a way, Peter, that your faith is completely destroyed. See, I think Satan demanded before God to have Peter like he had Judas. To see his faith completely finished, completely destroyed. But look at what Jesus says next. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. See, when Jesus tells Peter that he has prayed for him, that his faith may not fail, and then Peter denies Jesus three times, does that mean that Jesus' prayer was ineffective? It seems like it. But if you look a little more closely, you'll discover that Jesus' prayer was, in fact, very effective. When Jesus prays that Peter's faith may not fail, what he means is that Peter's faith would not fail in such a way that there would be no return for him. That his faith would not fail completely like Judas. Because within Jesus' words to Peter is an allusion to Peter's denial and his restoration, right? I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. But when you deny me three times, when you have turned again, repented and been restored, strengthen your brothers. In other words, Jesus' prayer for Peter did not prevent him from sinning in denying Jesus. But it did prevent Peter from his faith failing completely and totally like Judas. Jesus' prayer for Peter kept Peter from a more greater evil. And this is why, brothers and sisters, we need to heed Jesus' warning. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. You don't know how your prayers are being effective and keeping you from sin. If we have any chance of overcoming temptation in our own lives, it will begin with a life devoted to prayer. And if we want to love our brothers and sisters in helping them not enter into temptation, we will be devoted to, for, to praying for them as well. While soldiers have shields to defend themselves and nations have borders and walls, the saint has prayer as his defense against the waging bombardment of temptations. Watch and pray. This is Jesus' warning to us. Third thing we, I want us to see in this passage is the man's determined obedience. Jesus' determined obedience. We see this in the rest of the passage, verses 41 to 51. And he came the third time, and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? 
It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs and from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scripture be fulfilled. And they left, and they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. You see, here in these verses, you see Jesus' determined obedience to the will of his Father. This, of course, is related to his surrendering to the will of his Father in verse 36. Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus here at this moment submits to the circumstances that will befall him. Because he has chosen obedience. You see it in the language in verse 41 to 42, right? He came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. It's almost as though he was handing himself over rather than him being captured. The hour has come. I am ready. Let us rise. Let us go and meet my betrayer. I have come for this very moment. And of course, Judas is there with a crowd carrying weapons sent on behalf of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And Judas comes with this crowd and approaches Jesus and betrays him with a kiss. And those with weapons laid hands on Jesus and then they seized him. But no weapons are necessary. Because Jesus will not put up a fight despite one of his disciples taking matters into his own hands and striking the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Jesus at this moment will willingly surrender himself into their hands because he has already surrendered himself into his Father's hands. He knows what lays before him is his Father's will, and therefore he will be obedient and follow his Father's will. You see the confidence that he has in his Father's will when he confronts them in verse 48 to 49. Jesus said to them, have you come out against a, as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not cease me, seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. In other words, know this, understand this, that you had opportunity after opportunity to seize me when I was teaching in the temple, yet you never did. And here's why. Let the scriptures be be fulfilled. All that is unfolding, the timing of these events, all of these events are happening so that the scripture, God's decrees, will be fulfilled. Jesus knows this, 
and he is obediently submitting to the will of his father. He is determined to accomplish the will of his father. You see, all throughout this section, Jesus is being contrasted to that of the disciples. While the disciples are not watching and praying, but sleeping, Jesus is on his knees crying out to his father in anguish. While Jesus is willingly handing himself over to his enemies, not only does one of his disciples strike the servant of the high priest, but we're also told in verse 50 that they all left him and fled. And then, of course, we get this very strange little moment that Mark has included of a young man who was following Jesus. And when they seized him, he left the linen cloth that he was wearing and ran, a na- ran away naked. Naked. He was terrified. Some have speculated that this was Mark himself, and Mark included it to capture what the disciples were like in this moment. So fearful were they for their own lives that not even nakedness would prevent them from escaping. The contrast is startling. His disciples are sleeping. Jesus is praying. His disciples are fleeing. Jesus is surrendering. He is the obedient Son of God, and He is determined to accomplish the Father's will and to drink the cup that lays before Him. And it's because of Jesus' obedience to the will of His Father that we have the hope of salvation. As Romans 5.19 says, For as by one man's disobedience... Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. You and I were made sinners because of Adam's rebellion against God in the garden. Sin entered the world. Sin flows through our veins. So by, though, the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Because of Christ's obedience to the will of his Father and laying down his life for our sins, because of that obedience, the many, his His offspring, his spiritual offspring, will be made righteous. Our hope resides in the obedience of Jesus to the will of his Father. But here's what I want us to see. Jesus as man demonstrates what true true discipleship is all about as his followers. We're called to follow after Jesus and to live by his example. Which means, just as Jesus surrendered to the will of his Father, so we are called to surrender to the will of our Heavenly Father. Just as Jesus waged war against temptation through communing with his Father, so we are called to wage war against temptation by being a people of prayer. And just as Christ was determined to obey his heavenly father, we too are called to a life of obedience. As Jesus explicitly stated, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so I end by asking two simple questions. The first is to those of us who are here who still not have not bowed the knee to Jesus. My question for you is this. Will you today surrender your life to Jesus Christ and declare, not my will, but your will be done? There's only two wills in the end. Your will versus the will of God. Your will leads to destruction 
The will of God leads to everlasting life. Will you surrender your will to God? Secondly, if you are a Christian here, are you waging war on your knees against sin and temptation? Or are you asleep? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Son, the man Christ Jesus, who endured so much pain and agony for us and left us an example of what it means to follow you no matter the cost. Give us that trust. Give us that faith. Give us that kind of obedience by the power of your spirit. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.